This episode of No Quarter is sponsored by the Underground Retrocade. You love these games, and the way you want to play them is on the original cabinets. You want to see the side art, you want to feel the controls, and you want to hear Berlin on the stereo. So when you're in the Chicago area, head over to the Underground Retrocade for that classic arcade experience. As soon as you step inside, it'll take your breath away. The Underground Retrocade, 121 West Main Street, West Dundee, Illinois. I'm Carrington Vanston. And I'm Chester Rockwell. <laughs> and this is No Quarter, the classic arcade podcast. The Boogie Nights edition. <laughs> Throwing me curves. Hello, Chest. <laughs> How are you? I'm good, Brock. How are you? <laughs> I'm Brock. Am I? You're okay, going to be cool. Brock Landers and I'm going to be Chest Rockwell. <laughs> I like our new names. <laughs> awesome. Cool. I could be Brock. I could be a Brock. I could pull that sure. off. Definitely. Sure. Why not? I got the motorcycle for it. So what's new in Mike land? Uh, not much, Carrington. How about how, how are things in Toronto? Cold snowed today. Snowed really? today. You know, it's freezing cold. It's not a bad temperature from middle of February. Oh, wait, it's end of March. <laughs> it's very frustrating. It only snowed a little bit. Plus a lot of Toronto caught on fire today. Well, it was uh, 13 degrees here. That's a lot of degrees. Holy cows. Or are you talking Fahrenheit? Those are Canadian degrees. Yeah. Okay, then. Yeah, then that's good. Wow. That's much yeah. warmer than it is here. I have a little thing on my, my phone now that, that tells me what degrees it is in Toronto. I'm slowly converting you over language. to Celsius and you're saying <laughs> Zed. Oh, it's awesome. I'm having, I'm having, but, I see I'm having my way with you, but that's not really true. Well, God, I hope not. But, but inevitably this is a bad thing for you because that's just going to, all of this is going to turn me Canadian and then I'm going to have to move there and, and there goes the neighborhood. We will welcome you with open arms, eh? You just have Rob Ford standing at the border. Oh, we're going to take, we're going <laughs> to trade him for you. Trade him for a pack of peanuts. So, as far as I can tell, our listeners prefer to put quarters in machines than play for nothing. That's because they're they're intelligent, thoughtful, and sensitive individuals. <laughs> unlike yourself, Carrington. Because they agreed with you. We got a ton of feedback. Last week, we had no feedback, and we whined about it and begged for feedback. And this week, we got a lot. And most of you wrote letters that are very, very long. So we'll only be able to read a couple of letters this week. Uh, and I appreciate it though. Love the letters. We will respond to everybody in email. It was fantastic. But overall, a lot of discussion on whether it's better to have quarter-based machines in modern arcades or the the play all you want for a certain amount of money. You pay $20, get all day or something like that. And the majority of people did seem to say that in general – they prefer to put the quarter in. Now, I still have some issues. I'm still going to defend my, my side here. <laughs> my side is it's better to pay like that. Well, partly because it's it's an unfair comparison. Because if you're going to pay $15 or $20 or whatever it is in 2014 dollars, it's not fair to compare it against paying a quarter. So I looked it up, found a site called in2013dollars.com, and you can convert between different years. So I said, well... Man, you are really reaching here to make Converted this $1980 <laughs> to 2014. So 25 cents back then is 76 cents today. So you have to think in terms of, no, you got to put three quarters in every machine just to make it the same price as before. And I would think of economies of scale and the expense of keeping these 35-year-old machines going. That still seems low. But even then, you got to compare it against 
you know, quarters to quarters. So I think it's less of a value if you're paying 25 cents or a dollar or two dollars every game. Um, your argument still doesn't hold up. My argument holds lots of things. <laughs> it doesn't, that doesn't work because I, because even if it were 75 cents a game, it's not about the amount of money. Cause I can, I can afford to spend 40 or $50 at an arcade in an evening. Um, it's about the experience of dropping the coins in. It's about getting into a fist fight after I tried to put my quarter on somebody else's machine and he still wanted to play. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's not, it's a visceral thing to drop the quarter in and, and hear the thing go ding and do the one up rather than just hitting the play button. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people had most feedback was along those lines that it's about the experience of that. Uh, a lot of people wrote us in saying that they've, they've gotten really good at games now. Now that you can play all you want, now that you're an adult, now that you've got some real experience, a lot of times you can play for a long time on one play on a game. So in a sense, it can be less expensive to play pay as you, as you play because you might be able to go half an hour a game or something like that. I can't, but you know, our listeners who are better at this stuff than me, they can. But for the most part, the feedback was they just like the act of putting the money in the machines and that adds to the fun of the play. So in general, our audience is definitely saying that, that as a rule, they do prefer it. Even if it was to cost more, everyone would say that even if it's going to cost me more, I would prefer to put the money in the machine so that I've paid for that one play and, and, you know, take it a little more seriously, what have you. That's that, that that's an integral part of the experience. So I was, I was kind of surprised that that was almost universally our feedback. Well, now I wonder how much of this is actually a nostalgia thing because originally that was part of the arcade experience. You know, if back in the day, say, say in 1983, the business model was commonly um, a free play or, you know, you pay a certain amount at the door and you get, you know, like, like they say Dave and Buster's where, where you get like a card that has credit on it and you just mm-hmm. insert that and don't really think about it. I wonder if we would be saying that, that I want to put quarters in the machine if it had been the opposite. Almost certainly not. I think if it wasn't that that was the way it used to be, nobody would think it's that way now. Maybe if instead we just go with a a modern approach, the game should be free to start with, and it'd be something like insert three dollars to unlock the power pills in the corners. <laughs> it will, right, it'll all be unlockables. Micropayments. <laughs> oh, I hate them so much. <laughs> the, the, the thing that is the oh. worst part of modern gaming is that. Mm. So, um, but yeah, pretty much universally, everybody would rather put quarters in, even if it's multiple quarters. They all want to put quarters in. That's because we're right. <laughs> well, you're right. <laughs> like I, I like to pay all you play. <laughs> so I, I'm the one that's different, but we'll see if you win me over. Um, we got email from Chen who said this was really, really interesting that he worked briefly for a game plan. And we went back and forth a few times and had to translate some stuff, but he worked and did just, I think he's, as far as I can tell, worked for less than a year, but he was one of the people who partly assembled the shark attack machines oh, that wow. we were talking about last week. So it was so much fun to get feedback from him. Neat. And the main thing I took away from it was he says that, yes, it was essentially an automotive cassette player, but I was wrong about it being two tapes. It's just one cassette that would go inside the machines to play the audio for shark attack. But that tape has both the voice track and the screaming track on it. And he thinks it was basically like stereo. So the tape just essentially switches over briefly to the other track, the screaming track, whenever you eat something. And then it goes back to the the talking track, which is why you can't get both talking and screaming at the same time. That is really hard to talk when you're screaming. 
It is hard to talk when you're screaming and being eaten by a shark. So, but I thought it was a great little detail because I haven't seen that anywhere online, like how this works. So it is a single cassette and it's just using the, the basically the stereo tracks to switch back and forth between because it is a 45 second cassette just on a loop and it simply, you know, jumps over to the, say, to the right side to do the screaming for a bit and then jump back whenever, whenever you eat something. Yeah. And I read more of the manual this week the, that you can get on archive.org and and it didn't come out and say directly, there's only one cassette or anything like that, but everything, uh, all of the technical information in there points to the fact that it's just one cassette in a car stereo that's been bolted to the underside of this cabinet. Right. <laughs> Which, frankly, I love. <laughs> I love that that's the case, and that's what makes me want to have one of those cabinets. Maybe GPI were, were the people who stole my car stereo when I was in high school. <laughs> Maybe, but in a, in a Shark Attack right. machine. <laughs> So let's see, we also got nice email from a bunch of people. Uh, Wade wrote in to say, hi again, guys. I thought I'd chime in again after the apparent lack of recent listener feedback you mentioned during your last podcast. Thanks for reading my email on an earlier episode, Anteater. Here's some love coming your way. Just want to reiterate that as a diehard arcade junkie, I appreciate your podcast. And like you, I grew up in the golden age of arcades. No Quarter allows me to relive tidbits from my childhood via the reported history, trivia, arcade stories that your podcast extols. Good use of extols their way um it's kind of fun to discover or rediscover arcade games that you've highlighted on the show case in point after your last episode i went home and immediately played shark attack making sure my main cabinet had the sound samples so vitally important to making the game worth playing i also love the show notes listed for each episode great job they're like a sideshow to the circus i've discovered several unique arcade related gems of information there fun links to check out thanks this brings me to my final thought in your last episode you mentioned a short film called arcade I watched it later via the link in your show notes. Very cool. I happen to love arcade documentaries and short films such as The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters, Tilt, The Battle to Save Pinball, and Chasing Ghosts. For most of the same reasons, I like your podcast. Now, what are your thoughts on such movies and documentaries? What are your favorites and why? Any recommendations? And then he has a link to a great site over at, um, or a great list over at heavy.com where they, they list what they say are the top uh, 15 video game doc- documentaries. Now, they're not all arcade-based documentaries, but we'll have that link in the show notes. So what about you, Mike? Um, any favorites when it comes to ar- or game or arcade-based documentaries? I like them. <laughs> okay. Any ones in particular? All of them. Really? Like, just, just in general, you're a big fan? I, I tend to be a fan of documentaries about things that I'm interested in, so yes. Um, I, I don't know. You, you kind of... There's a lot of ways that you can go with these. Of course, King of Kong chose to tell a story, and that story was, mm, we'll call it distorted, and we'll leave it, we'll leave it at that. You know, they, they didn't make anything up, but they had enough footage that they could edit the story that they wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. So is that, is that a real documentary, or is this, have we created a fictional thread out of, out of a bunch of, of, of taped reality? I, I don't know. And, and so my 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 initial instinct on that is to go well you know I don't I kind of wanted to stay away from that cuz I'd like the the more realistic documentary but then you get a, a sort of on the other end of the perspective or the other end of the spectrum um something like chasing ghosts which is a lot more it's just pure documentary but it's less interesting because there's not a not really a, a strong narrative thread that that moves through the whole story other than hey these people love arcade games Although I really liked Chasing Ghosts. I did too. I did too, but for different reasons than I liked uh, King of Kong. 
Um, of course, nothing will ever compare to my most favorite, my most favorite of all arcade documentaries, Hollywood Zap. <laughs> I remember when you made me watch that, you evil, <laughs> evil man. Um, I, like you, I really enjoy these sorts of documentaries, which is really saying something because as a rule, I have not been a big fan of documentaries in general um, from an early age. I just wasn't interested. In fact, I, I used to basically claim there was no such thing as a documentary. You cannot make a film with the 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 the, the anthropomorph anthropological aspect is going to change what well, you do, sure. and and so that's why when we end up with things like King of Kong, where I'm like, it's not a documentary, it's fiction. All documentaries are fiction. I have uh, become less less. Uh, uh, Judgmental. That would be a good word for it. <laughs> I, was, I was looking for a less judgmental word. But, you know, let's go with that. I've become a little less judgmental and a little more open-minded when it comes to documentaries in general over the last few years. I've come to really enjoy them. For me, though, it does seem to be that I've got to, I've got to approach a documentary with, a, with an already having an interest in the subject matter. That if I go in, uh, I still am a little closed-minded if it's a subject that I'm not interested in. So things like video games, though, are perfect for me to watch and i have enjoyed quite a few of them on the list that we we're just talking about that wade sent us um there was one on there actually it's a series of shows from on the discovery channel called rise of the video game and i had never seen it before and i watched it and it's great so if you have already consumed dear listener the various documentaries that we've talked about a few times like we have often brought up um you know the space invaders documentary and chasing ghosts and and King of Kong. And like, you know, these are great things. And But most of us have already watched them. Perhaps, though, you've never seen the, the series Rise of the Video Game. So if not, check out our show notes over at MonsterFeet.com. And you can see the, the top 15 links uh, that Wade sent to us. And in those, number seven is Rise of the Video Game. And I would suggest checking out. It was quite good. The secrets of our times are coded in the games we play. Video games say a lot about the period in which they were created. Video games are an expressive and representative art form. Video games are not just art, but they're culture, they're creativity. A new industry was born from a wartime era on the brink of technological advancements. Isn't it nice that something like Cold War technology could, in its own adversarial way, spawn something that was adversarial in a really pleasurable way. Today, video games are an integral part of our culture, leading us into the future with eyes wide open. So we also got email from our favorite sarcasm officer, Quinn Dunkey, and she wrote in, I like this opening, utterly amazing show as always, love it so, so much, and then put in brackets, probably not true, place there to ensure further reading. <laughs> she knows us well. <laughs> I knew it. And she says, and, and this was uh, the first of a few bits of feedback we got about pinball. She says, your brief discussion of pinball in the Shark Attack episode was interesting to me because I've fairly recently gotten the pinball bug myself. But I started in the same place as you guys. I spent my youth in arcades scoffing at those dumb old machines that were obviously stupider than the cool video games, especially when they added the dot matrix displays on them. Look, I said, trying so hard to be like video games because video games are obviously better. My scoffing muscles really got ripped, I can tell you. As an adult, two things changed my mind. One, 
Learning that pinball is rather like poker. Newbies think it's mostly luck with a little skill, and experts know the opposite of true. And then she gave us a link over at papa.org that is about advanced flipper techniques. And there's a bunch of videos there. So she says those videos convinced her of that. I'll put those link, that link in the show notes. And two, learning that gameplay of modern pinballs, mid-90s and onward, is actually the same as arcade games. There are missions, side quests, storylines, inventory man- management, all the good stuff. They use different jargon for it all. Modes, progression, bonus locks, specials, etc. But the game design is actually the same and equally deep. Pinball's main, main issue is approachability. A deep modern game, when first played, is completely baffling. It pays to grab the rule sheet online and read up on a game's basic goals and mechanics before playing. The learning curve is similar to a modern RTS or MMO, so it does take a little desire to learn before you get into it. The moral of all this is, I do encourage you to give pinball another chance, find a place to play play good and, more importantly, well-maintained games. The machines have to be in good condition or they're just not fun. The one up in Denver was a dream for that. Long row of A-list games in perfect condition. That said, please don't talk about pinball too much on No Quarter. There are, I counted, 200,000 dedicated pinball podcasts currently being produced. What you guys do is vastly more underserved underserved niche. So great advice there. We also had a couple of other people uh, write us with similar sort of um, feedback to say pinball is uh like they're they're deep games there's much more to them especially the modern ones than just you know balls bouncing around it's much more skill-based that we should maybe give it more of a chance had it um i think ultra magnus somebody wrote even on twitter that at the next uh next kansas fest introduce me to pinball and show me some of the advantages of it we also though got a lot of feedback saying well they encourage us to enjoy pinball give it a chance go out and play it Keep it off the show. We're well focused here, focusing on like our little niche of video games is like, as Quinn say, an an underserved niche and that we should keep our focus as is. So the people have spoken. I will try pinball and I won't tell you about it. I was going to disagree with everything that, that Quinn said, but but her her sarcasm muscles scare me. So <laughs> they're ripped. Totally ripped. Okay, let me scare you off with more then. We got email from Kirk. Kirk Musgrave. He wrote, gentlemen. Thank you so much for this awesome podcast. Rob O'Hara has recommended you all numerous times on You Don't Know Flack, but I've just recently gotten around to starting to listen to No Quarter. I wish I'd taken his recommendation sooner. As it is, I'm listening to the new shows every week, and I also have gone back and starting to started listening to back episodes. You may have already mentioned this book on the show, but I've not listened uh, on a show I've not listened to yet. But I would recommend the book "The Final Day at Westfield Arcade." And he has a link to it. It's over on um, on Amazon. He says, as one reviewer said, if you could capture the 80s in a book, this is it. And I have purchased a copy of this book now. So I'll just break out of the email for a second. Now, Mike, I don't know if you checked out this book after we got this uh, email. Have you, have you taken a look at this yet? No, I don't read our, our anything we get from our listeners. <laughs> You're supposed to be the one who, who responds. <laughs> anyway, the book looks fantastic. So it's The Final Day at Westfield Arcade. It's by a fellow named Andy Hunt. And um, here's the little little uh, jacket description. In 1982, there were 13,000 video game arcades in North America that generated over 8 billion in quarters, a figure higher than the combined revenue of the music and film industries that year. By 2002, fewer than 500 arcades remains, with a total revenue had dropped to less than 100 million. The final day at Westfield Arcade is a coming-of-age novel set against the backdrop of the astronomic rise and fall of the video game industry. I think it sounds awesome. As far as I know, we haven't 
talked about it before, so I'll make sure I have the, this link in the show notes. So anybody else who's interested, if you are unlike Mike and actually can read, then you should check it out. <laughs> I agree. Uh, we got another, we got a couple of people actually wrote in about You Don't Know Flack this week. Kim also wrote in to say um, we should link to the video game crash episode that uh, Flack did uh, back, looks like his episode 125. Don't let the one in there fool you. Flack lies about his numbers. <laughs> so episode quote 125 unquote was uh, the video game crash of 1983. That was actually a really good episode. He did a much better job of of discussing it and rounding up the, the various issues than we did. I wonder what 32 billion quarters looks like. It looks like a big pile with the uh, Scrooge McDuck swimming around in it. Well, he said what eight billion, eight billion in quarters in a year, something mm-hmm. like that. That's thirty-two billion quarters, I think. If my American education math doesn't fail me, um, and I'm just wondering, like, what kind of warehouse you would need to hold thirty-two billion quarters? How bad would your math have to be that you can't multiply eight by four? <laughs> American public school education, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that's a pretty low bar, <laughs> but okay. Um, let's see. What else have we got? Great reading level. Let's do maybe a couple more. So, uh, Yan wrote in Yanlon Thompson. He's written in a couple times and I'm going to read his because I love the opening here. Greetings programs. And if you know what movie that came from, then you are also my favorite person. And if you don't, then you shouldn't be listening to this (laughs) podcast. But well done. Yan. Great opening. Greetings programs. Don't know if you've heard this bit of news yet, but we can't have you guys talking about nothing for two episodes in a row. (laughs) This Saturday (laughs) at 12 a.m. Kim Cannon arm Kobke dropped a quarter in the gyrus coin up at the Chasic yeah, Chasic Arcade in Copenhagen. Uh, 35 hours and 28 minutes later, he passed the world record set back in 1987. In the end, he wound up playing for 49 hours and 16 minutes and totaled 62,200,250 points. That's a ton of points. So uh, Yen gave us a link to uh, a kill screen um, site that has all the details. You got your work cut out for you, Carrington, don't you? And that's that's a cabinet that you have, right, Jarvis? No. No? No. I've only got um, uh, Gravatar and Fix It. Oh, you have Gravatar. Yeah, same game. Whatever. <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> and uh, believe me, my Gravit- I think my Gravatar high score at the moment is something like 50,000. <laughs> I can still, <laughs> even owning it and getting to play all the time I want. It still kind of suck. It's okay. such a hard game. It's so. It's a hard. good thing you like it anyway. I love it. I love it. It was a very. It was the perfect choice for me because it does challenge me, and I still enjoy it. But holy cow, am I bad at that game? I agree. <laughs> You're very agreeable. <laughs> and then, other than that, we just had a lot of people write in, all so confident that they knew what this week's game was. And everybody <laughs> got it wrong. Uh, no, our sponsor did get it right. No way, did he? He did. Oh, yep. man. He got it right, but nobody else did. It's kind of funny because the only time I've ever played this game was at the Underground Retrocade. <laughs> it was them that introduced me to it. We got basically two responses. The first was, oh, it's, it's Defender. Nope. And if they, didn't, if they didn't directly guess Defender, they said this is a Williams game. Also, nope. It is neither of those things. We were particularly sneaky this week (laughs) because it's a game that is very reminiscent of Williams Games and Defender. And I picked a bit of sound, a sound snippet that was particularly Defender-like. So um, I am impressed that anybody could see through that and actually guess what the actual game was. Yes, this week it was Konami. That's right. It was a Konami game called Juno First. Now... Mm -hmm. 
when you play this game, you will think you are playing a Williams game because it looks and sounds all the way down to the, the way the scoreboard is presented. It looks and sounds like a Williams game. I, I was playing this and I, I kept thinking, how did Konami not get sued by, by Williams for this? And I guess they just said, well, you know, we don't care. We're going to do it. And we dare you to sue us or I don't know, but it's, I, if I did not, if I didn't know going into this, that this was Konami, I never would have guessed it was anything other than a Williams game. Absolutely. It is so, so Williams. It's basically like Defender meets Galaxian as made by Williams. It's so Williams. It's so Williams. I mean, it looks like a Williams game, sounds like a Williams game, plays like a Williams game in that it kicked my butt. Uh, it's crazy, but like you said, like right down to those little details, like the way that when you're on the, the high score, the colors sort of cycle through them. It was just a little not quite as vibrant as a Williams game is the only thing I would say that, that told about it. it was a little bit more muted in its colors than the really electric colors that seemed to, to jump off from a Williams screen. Yeah. I, I think that, I think Williams got that maybe from, you know, from developing uh, arcade or from, from developing pinball games. Here we go talking about pinball again, but ah, pinball, pinball, my favorite. I, the pinball tables, at least the ones that that I that catch my eye, and the ones that I tend to want to play are the ones that do have the the more you know the, the just blindingly you know the, the whole game with the, the the blinding green and 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 I'm sure that that Williams didn't actually make that one, and we'll have angry readers writing in telling me <laughs> that that it was actually somebody else. But that my point is that that I think Not that angry that's, helpful helpful I, readers. Angrily helpful. Right. Of course. Developed by Konami and released, released in 1983. Uh, mm-hmm. Distributed here in the United States by Gottlieb. Also Pinball Maker. Yes. And uh, this, this, uh, Wikipedia describes this game as a vertical scrolling shooter with a third-person perspective. And it kind of is. It, it's like slightly isometric. So you're up and behind your, your guy. Imagine like a, if you're playing Galaxian and then somebody's sort of tipped the top of the machine away from you like 30 degrees that's kind of how you're playing i really like i like this i think is an excellent use of isometric and i like the grid that you're 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 flying on um i like the look of this i mean really i think it captures a lot of what i like about williams games even though it's not a williams game (laughs) i don't particularly care for this game Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Oh, well, then we will disagree, sir, <laughs> because I quite enjoy it. I didn't hate it. It's not It's not down at the bottom with Buck Rogers, although it sort of had the same perspective as Buck Rogers. This was at least interesting. What I didn't like about Juno First is, is it's the – I don't like this thing about all games that do this, and it's that there's so much going on on the screen and, and very little is explained to you, and you're left to sort of figure out – try to figure out the I don't know if there are secrets. We I don't know if you would call them Easter eggs or or what. But you know, for example, there's a there's a portion of the game where the screen turns pink briefly, and and mm-hmm. and I guess bonuses double during that. Yeah, that's time when time. you've captured you know? the mystery, which is really right. the alien astro- astro- right. astronaut. Which basically is the humanoid that you catch in in Defender if you're playing a Williams game, but there's a lot of that. There's a lot of weird little stuff like that. That and maybe the programmers that's what they were going for and they thought wow it'd be neat if players could play and they could discover these secrets about them i hate that i can't stand it it drives me (laughs) nuts especially when there's a ton of weird stuff going on on the screen so you start you start out on on level one and the ships are kind of at the top maybe 10 percent of the screen Mm -hmm. and they kind of hover around there and and they will drop down into your area. And that's sort of like i guess maybe coming out of the sky and down to your level and they start coming at you maybe 
Um, I think that's sort of the visual effect that they were going for and, you, and you're shooting them. What I do like about it is, is that it's really, I guess, frenetic would be a good word for it. There's a lot going, there's a lot enough there to get kind of my adrenaline flowing. And that's what kept me playing it and, and not hating it entirely. If this had been any slower, I, I, I would have hated the game. Completely, I don't think, it, so. I don't think it could be any faster. This game right. gets crazily fast, just like games like defender it gets pretty much too fast for me to keep up with. <laughs> and and that's not just because I'm now basically a million years old. When I was young, when I was young and had my reflexes still, and I was a young whippersnapper, um, games like Defender would still kick my butt. Like, I've never been great at these games. And I found that this one gets even more frenetic than Defender does. Like, just like... Tons of enemies all coming at you once, and they're not even in formation most of the time. There's, I think, 16 or 17 different waves that you can go through, and they eventually repeat. And it's only every three or four waves that, that you have sort of a... It's almost like a bonus level in, in Galaga, like where they come in formation. But for the most part, they're just scattered all over the place, and they're just sort of generally attacking you. It's sort of like the, the universe is kind of vaguely mad at you. It <laughs> will just shoot right. at you from all directions. So what drove me nuts, I guess, about the game is it just... You know, I kind of got in this this mindset of, well, I'm just I don't really get a lot of the little things that I think that these hints that they're that the developers are thinking that I'm going to get to really get a lot of enjoyment. So I'm just going to shoot everything that moves. Well, that's uh, which, pretty much the way you know, I approach all of these games. It, it is. But that's the problem for me is because because of that, it, it makes it harder for me to distinguish this from another shoot 'em up game. And I'm if I'm going to play a game like that. I'll just go play Galaga. See, I liked for me. I liked a lot of the little details, and I and I didn't. I found it fast and frantic enough that it was hard to keep up with. But I didn't feel like I was missing what was going on. Like I did get that when every once in a while the big asteroid will come once per wave. It seems you shoot the asteroid that releases the astronaut. You pick up the astronaut, and for a short period, you're getting a bunch of bonuses. I had to look up what the actual score thing was, but it was obvious to me that that was a way. That you could get a bunch of extra points. But you could also shoot that humanoid and different things would happen when you did that. Um, I don't know if you just got more points. What the deal was, the the little – I thought they were like little planetoids at first because the astronaut comes down on this like little round. It looks like a, I don't know, mini Earth or something. Hmm. Sometimes it's blue. Sometimes it's red. Don't know why. Just is. Um, sometimes when you – if you don't – it seemed like – it seemed like if you didn't shoot for a while, your little guns would like – glow or, or I didn't couldn't tell if that meant my guns were overheating or, or what the problem was. Oh, or, I didn't or what even that see meant. that. Yeah, this is a lot of stuff. And this is why I hate pinball. Okay, there I said it. I hate <laughs> pinball. Because you've got the play field and all the stuff's happening. You're trying to figure out trying to pick out, okay, what is the story here? And I feel like I'm just missing too much. And and this is obviously because my brain is slow because I'm old and, and not that smart to begin with. Uh, anyway but it kind of drove me nuts to the point where this is not going to be a top 10 game for me, maybe top 25. So not still that bad. I don't think there's much story here. So I didn't feel like I was missing much. <laughs> it's like there are enemies. I will shoot them. This is just xenophobia. <laughs> just go out and kill all things that are different than you. Um, <laughs> okay, I dug well. it. Like I like, I like the look of it. I like the fact that at the top of the screen, there's sort of a, a radar, which is sort of your long distance view. So you can vaguely tell that that's where the bad guys are. So you know when they're going to come on screen. And I like that better than the little radar that's say on top of a defender game where you're, you're looking up at the radar and that's separate from your normal 
scrolling back and forth view. I like the fact that here, since you're going up and down, the radar is the whole top of the screen. And it really, I found it a much more useful radar. Like I would exactly know where things are. I can fire ahead of time and shoot forward and bring them on screen and kill things. I like the fact that you can go backwards, like just like in Defender where you can go back and forth. This is a game where you're moving up. But a lot of games where you're generally scrolling upward, you can't really go backwards. This is a game where you can stick on the brakes and you can really go back, but go back far enough to throw guys back, your enemies back up onto the radar um, and then use that and to run away from things. Um, I did find that if I went backwards too far, I would just have all those... Um, uh, those little white bombs that are homing things would be coming at me. So you can only do that so much before you're just doomed. But I, but I like that. And I like, I found it really re- responsive. I like the, I like Williams games in the way that it shoots that like the, this is the, not Williams game. I know. No, but I'm saying in a Williams <laughs> game, I like the way that when you shoot, it's a laser that's sort of like a streaky laser rather than just a little bomb. And this game does that. And that's something I, one of the things I always liked best about Williams games. And so this has that element. And so I like it here too. I like a, I like a streaky laser versus just a little space bullet. I like I'm this sort stuff. Of, I'm sort of ind- indifferent about the the laser length issue, but I I do agree with you that that this was I, I do like the fact that that you could you could you know, you weren't just forced to go forward and move side to side because a lot of those games what happens is you just feel like well, you're just moving side to side because the stuff's coming at you anyway, so you're not really actually moving forward. Uh, whereas this I I did like that fact that you could move back and you can move around. You do have a time limit. You have 99 seconds to finish each level. Mm-hmm. I, I, I never I never felt like I got close to that. Uh, no, I would either be dead or I'd have ample time. Right. <laughs> that was yeah. more just, you know, the more time you have left, the more bonus you get at the end. So it just it, it gives you a reason to hurry. But there was ample time. You're, no one's going to be able to survive just floating around for 99 seconds. Exactly. So I like that. And, and I like the fact that it was very responsive. I did enjoy that it felt like a Williams game. And the sound, the music and, and the sound effects were outstanding. I mean, just great stuff and, and mm-hmm. really kind of draw you into the game. So overall, there, it's it's a really polished game. I just wish there hadn't been so much stuff going on or they had done a better job, you know, somewhere on the game, on either on the control panel or, or maybe I just didn't sit long enough on the attract screen to see the, the instructions. But I just felt confused about a lot of the, the gameplay elements that I wish that I had known more about. Now, obviously... I went on later and read about them on the internet, but you know, 1983, that wasn't, wasn't really an option. So I like it. <laughs> I like this game. Just right away. This hooked me. It hooked me when I played it at our sponsor at the underground retrocade. The only time I played this before they had it on a 60 and one machine, which is how I think most people play it. It seems to be on all of the multi-cades. And uh, I just loved it immediately. I just immediately went, this is awesome. It, it captures everything I like about a typical Williams game, but in a new format. It was like it was like a brand new Williams game for me. Now, maybe it wouldn't be so exciting if I had known about it since 1983. But the fact that it was new, it was like somebody just told you, oh, by the way, there's also Stargate. You went, what? There's another one? And like to me, this was like a little 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 bonus prize like just you went in just like here's another game like this and i and i and i adore it i liked how fast it was i now i did find it's crazily fast like when you finish each wave there's like basically two seconds and you're right in the next one like this game just never lets you stop there's no point where you say oh we're gonna have a nice 
pause for a while we, as we collect some bonus points then and then like say a cut screen or something and then we'll go into a a, a, a you know say a bonus level there's none of that like it's just every three or four waves is one of those formation waves but they come just as fast as the normal waves and it's like okay go okay go okay go so really i mean eventually it just would wear me down i would find i would get exhausted i could only play so many of these in a row before my heart is going so fast i have to take a break and go play something else yeah for, for me it's it's a very physical exercise because i I tend to, you know, as as I get drawn into a game like this and um, and get excited, you know, the, the adrenaline starts going and the, the heart starts pounding. I push harder on the joysticks and slam the buttons, and and it can be it's physically tiring after a while, especially if you play this a lot. And yeah, I waited until yesterday to start reading about the game itself, and that's where I found out about you know the, the astronaut and the pink screen and stuff. And I will say that that after I did that, I had a much better time playing the game because then I understood, oh, well, you know, once you, when you grab the Aston and the, the screen is pink, that's really when you want to attack for, for points because the bonuses really go up there. Yeah. And so like, to let our listeners know, and by the way, I also would find it exhausting, but mostly because I say pew, pew, pew every time I fire. So my throat would get sore, by the end of it. <laughs> but in, in, we both have our own ways of playing. But um, so the, the bonuses, like there's two big ways to get bonuses here. The first is there's a multiplier based on the time you have left. So you start with 99 seconds. You, it can be as high as um, 17 times multiplier if you have 86 seconds left. How you could complete this that quickly, <laughs> I have no idea. So if you can, you can knock this whole thing off in 13 seconds, then I guess you could do that maybe on one of the formation rounds, but I don't know. Uh, then you would get a bonus. So like, for instance, on round 17, if you finish with, with 86 seconds left, then you could get 400 points times 17, which would be uh, 6,800. So you can get a pretty big bonus there because um, you get up to 400 points for your end of wave bonus based on time. And then your round also gives you a multiplier. So yeah. the big points, though, come from, like we said, shooting that asteroid that spits out or the astronaut and then you capture the astronaut. So when you capture the astronaut, you'll get somewhere between 800 and 3,200 points, depending on what round you're on. Then the first ship you shoot during this bonus period, everything goes pink. Everything, oh, you would like me when I'm angry. You're seeing pink. <laughs> and then you shoot. The first enemy you shoot, you'll get also somewhere between 400 and 3,200 points, depending on what round you're on. But then each subsequent ship you shoot during this period is worth 200 more points than the last up to 3200 points so if you can shoot a whole bunch of ships during this period that's where you rack up the really major points so at the very beginning of the game first couple of levels where it's a little simpler i started deciding well the way to go is to not shoot anything until mm-hmm. the asteroid appears so i've got yep. lots of enemies yep. and then you blow away the asteroid astronaut asteroid sorry pick up the astronaut and then you can shoot tons of things I found, though, that by the time I got into, like, <laughs> wave three or four, not shooting things for a while was not an option. It was no, way it... too frantic. So I can really hold it. I recommend that as a tip for, like, levels one and two, and then it gets a little too frantic. Yeah, the, the difficulty really ramps up pretty quickly after mm-hmm. the first couple of levels. Part of that is because it gets faster. And for me, anyway, uh, you, you'd mentioned that, okay, there are there are two types of screens, I guess, if you want to call it. The first is, is where the ships just sort of come at you in, in seemingly random patterns. Come at me, brah. Yep. And, and you shoot them as they come down and, and those tend to be pretty easy, especially the first couple of times through. Uh, hey, some the, of us die on those levels anyway. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah. Just saying. For, for me, where it got really hard was, was with the, um, with the formation 
um, level. So some of the levels later on, the, the ships come into the screen sort of like they do in the bonus levels of Galaga where they fly in from mm-hmm. the side and they're all in formation. The thing is with Juno first, everything is, the ships are really tight and they're really good at pinning you into a corner and you can't shoot fast enough to destroy all the ships before one or two of them get to you. And, Plus and what would mess me up is you'll see on the radar that the formations are coming, but the formations sort of appear on screen. They don't slide down from the radar like everything else does. So they would appear closer to me than I would anticipate and then be you know really tight together, all of them shooting at once. And then like you say, they will back you into a corner and then you try to go backwards, but you just can't go backwards fast enough. So the formation screens, I, I would have thought would be the easiest ones because they're all in a line. And you could just wipe things out. And I bet you if you memorize the formations like you can do with Galaga, you can get better at it. But at this point in my basically first week of playing, I hadn't memorized <laughs> anything. And the formations really would destroy me, especially yeah, me the, the second formation round, which would be like round eight or whatever, would almost always spell my doom. Yep. It would they'd actually come on screen in a, in a formation that spelled your doom. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, you wisecrackers. Well, and the first time through this, this is the first time that I've, I remember playing Juno first. I don't remember ever playing this in the arcade. I remember being excited about it when you talked about playing it in Chicago. and. I, that, that the first time I saw those formations, just it's like level three or something like that. Mm -hmm. I died three times in a row, like within a few seconds, just like (laughs) boom, 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 dead. I'm like, whoa. And you can die really quick in this because you do come back really fast. And if you're in a, if it's in a a position where there's lots of things on screen, you can lose all your men really quickly in this game. Right. But the game is designed well enough that I don't feel like, I don't feel like if I go back and play this later on tonight, which I will do, uh, (sighs) that I, I don't feel like you know, hopeless. I don't feel like I can't get better at this game or I'm never going to get past a certain point. There's that, there's that, that feeling that if I keep practicing, if I, as you suggested, learn the patterns, uh, I can do better. And, and it's weird that like the more I talk about it, the the less I dislike this game, especially now that I know what's going on. So mm-hmm. I'm talking it's, into it's, it. It's slowly climbing up the list of, of games that I like. I think it's fantastic. And I like a game. We're approaching the top 10 here. <laughs> I like a game that's really hard, but fair. Because a game that's not really hard, you eventually sort of get bored of it. A game like this that's going to absolutely destroy me at first, but give me hints that with enough effort, I could actually rack up a big big score, that's a game that appeals to me more. That, I mean, that's the reason I have a, a, um, a Gravatar machine is it's crazily hard, but fair enough and, and designed in a way that makes me think if I put the time in, I'll get better. Now, it turns out with, with Gravatar, that hasn't proven to be the case yet, <laughs> but I'm still hopeful. And this is a game which I do, like, it just, you know, it destroys me. Like, I'm, I'm really, you might yeah. not have liked this game. I still think my score's going to be lower than yours. I don't do well at this kind of game. But... I do think that it's a game that I could get better at and will continually challenge me. And I love the music. I like the sounds. I like the the long lasers. This game is delivering for me and I really, really enjoy playing it. Yeah, crazy difficult, but I never felt like it was cheating. I never felt like there were, you know, the the, um, the pixel collision problems where it's like, you know, some of the games that we've played, the shots, the game is hard because something is shooting at you and it's obviously missing you and you're dying anyway. No, collision detection was perfect in this. Yeah, it, that was great. Like you said, very responsive. Love the music. Um, and the reason that it was as responsive as it is mm-hmm. is because it has, for, for the CPU, it's it's an M6809 at uh, 1.5 megahertz. It also has a Z80 at 1.78975 megahertz and an Intel 8039 at 8 megahertz. Holy cow, that's a lot so, of processing power. It's got a lot of processing power. And that's not, power. none of that for sound? That's all for just no, chugging no, away the no. game? No, in fact, for the sound, Holy cow. 
for the sound, it's got the uh, AY3-8910A uh, mm-hmm. chip. It's got a DAC, and it's got three RC filters. Wow, so they threw some serious hardware at this. Yeah, so it's. I think they kind of went into this knowing we need to – we're going to throw a lot of stuff into this game. And so we need the, the power to make sure that, that it works well. And, and they pulled it off really well. Nice. You know, I have no complaints at all about the, the look or the feel of the game. Like I said, the sound and the music are, are wonderful. Right. Uh, there were, the game was ported to, uh, it looks like the Commodore 64 and the Atari 8-bit home computers by Datasoft. I imagine they took a look at the Apple II computer and went, this is, we can't do it on this. <laughs> Actually, I had somebody write in to say on something else we talked about weeks ago, we had talked about a Datasoft game, and they said Datasoft, for the most part, was more of a publisher, and most games would have been developed by somebody else. We were we were commenting that sometimes their games are really good, but for the most part, they're really terrible. No, no, no. You're thinking about Data East. This is Datasoft, which is a different oh, company. Oh, I am thinking yep. about Data East. Yep. Different different company entirely. Yes. Um, there There is a, a 2600 cartridge available. This Wait, I'm a, still thinking about Data East. <laughs> make it go away like, man it sucks uh okay there there is an atari 2600 homebrew cartridge available that you can buy right now from atari age it was released by chris walton that's recently. awesome yep. love the modern homebrew stuff well done chris walton and it's part of microsoft's game room service for the xbox 360 and it looks like a windows pc version was released uh in june of 2010 I'm still excited about this. As soon as you said that, I've gone and looked it up. You're right. It's available on Atari Age. We'll have a link in the show notes. You can get it for 25 bucks from the Atari Age store. Now, that comes with the cart and the manual. You can add $30 on top of that to also get a a custom box for it as well. Wow, that's actually really cool. So cool. Nice. Okay, I'll have a link to all that in the show notes. Um, and really well-reviewed. Video Game Critic gave it a big old thumbs up. So nice. Well done, Chris Walton. I didn't know about that that port. That's really cool. So I love the homebrew stuff. Yes. So is, Mike is the is the is the cabinet as exciting as the game itself? The cabinet's awesome. The cabinet is all kinds of fabulous, and I love it, and I would like to own it. Um, <laughs> all the things that I complain about some cabinets not having, this has all of it. So it's got like a nice dark blue colored sides with full side art, and it's painted on side art, not even the the sticker stuff. So you can um, there's a nice site called. Uh, what is this called? Stencils. Uh, GameStencils.com has stencils to restore the art. So oh, that nice. if you get a cabinet that's a bit junked up, you can use stencils and put it right back. So that's fantastic. Um, it's got like it's a it's a your standard you know upright cabinet with a lean back monitor inside it, but it's got a nice bright um, yellow and and orange Juno first logo on the marquee. It's got art these little sort of isometric dots artwork on the control panel so i like a control panel with some art above the monitor there's a little bezel image that in fact around the monitor there's a full colored bezel with artwork on it but above it there's one with instructions so we were saying how it lacks some instructions i think if you're playing on an actual cabinet that's one of the advantages there uh ball joystick in the middle two buttons on either side you've got your your thrust and your warp oh sorry fire and warp buttons we never talked about that but there's warp in this game too before you go on here i just wanted to say i forgot to mention this earlier when we were talking about this and especially the comparisons to Defender, one of the reasons that I, I think I prefer Juno first, I've only played this for a week, so I haven't really made up my mind. Um, I think I like this more than Defender. And one of the big reasons is Defender has like five or eight buttons or something insane like that. And this is two buttons. And it's still I still get the same sort of crazy um, energetic effect that, that I, I like when I play shooters. Mm-hmm. 
Now, what what it's lacking, of course, is one of the defender buttons that just like uh, wipe out all the the enemies. But when you do grab the little asteroid guy it, or the astronaut, it it gets rid of all the shots on the screen and freezes everything for just a heartbeat. So that sort of works double duty, like when you shoot that instead. But I agree, I prefer a game that is not like you know fifteen buttons and have to use your elbow. I always find Defender. I'm always smashing the wrong button or something. Oh, the um, warp whereas, you know, first nice and easy. Does it? Well, in this, oh. I found the main thing with the warp button here is to be moving. Because if you just warp and right. <laughs> you're staying still, it's not really helping you. It's just sort of, we're going to just take you off and we're going to put you back. Whereas if you're moving quickly, then when you warp, you hit the ground running again and it's actually useful. So it is important to be scooting forward when you hit that warp button. And the first time I hit it, the, the way it worked, the way the graphic works is your ship sort of flies apart. I thought yep. I exploded. I'm like, well, <laughs> totally. this is like the this is like the suicide button or something. I, well, know, I, I frequently would press warp as my like emergency yeah. get out of being killed. Mm-hmm. So you can't tell at first did it work or did it not work <laughs> right. because yeah. it kind of looks like you got shot. Then it's like, and eh, no, you're back. It's like, and oh, you're back, and oh, you've died. <laughs> yeah, totally. So frequently, I wouldn't know if I died or not, or did I get that button fast enough, or did I have any warps left? You get three warps per per wave, I think, and they don't carry over. So you might as well use them because you don't get to accumulate a whole bunch of warps. It sounds like it's a really good cabinet. It's a great cabinet. Yeah, great looking color. It's a good size. I I dig it very much. It's everything you'd want from a classic arcade cabinet where it's just, it's tasteful, but it's very colorful. It's got great side art, great art on the front. The marquee looks nice. Like it's just, it's, it's a classic looking cabinet and I really, really dig it. And I think it goes well with the game, but I really like in particular the side art. It's got the nice big Juno first art and sort of above and below are the dots going off isometrically and little, little, you know, spaceship shooting things. It's just, it's, it's everything I like in a cabinet. I think it's really classy. It's really tasteful, but it's also colorful. I dig it very much. Um, the, PCBs alone for these cabinets can typically go one to two hundred dollars. It is an expensive board, wow. and for for a game that is on every multi cab out there and runs perfectly in Mame, I'm kind of surprised at the prices Juno First takes. So, I, the, I found lots of places that would have like junker non-working cabinets that were just like monitors not working, nobody knows what's wrong with them, and they will go for three or four hundred dollars. And it's hard to find ones that are less than $600, $700 for working ones. There's currently two of them for sale in Canada. Because um, I was seriously looking, thinking, hmm, maybe I'll pick one of these up. Um, but I don't know, they're pricey. There's one for sale at the moment in BC that wants $750 for it. And there's one for sale in Calgary. Uh, but the one in Calgary is $900, but it comes with two bonus PCBs. Because um, uh, I guess the, the these cabs share a lot of the connections with a lot of other cabs. They're not JAMA things, but you can really swap PCBs in them very easily. And so this one comes with a Turtles PCB and uh, a game called Amigo, which I guess is an Amidar clone, but still is $900. And these are not like eBay prices. These are the private sale prices, which normally you'll find being a lot cheaper for games. So for some reason, Juno First is an expensive game to get. Wow. Yeah. There was a good, if people are interested in the cabinets, we'll have links to stuff and like flyers and things in the show notes. But in particular, I'll link to something over at um, Dragon's Lair's, Dragon Lair's fans, Dragon's Lair fans, I don't know, something, something along those lines dot com, <laughs> um, where somebody wrote uh, a long thread called Juno First, First Restoration. So they did a restoration. It was their first one doing a restoration. So you can really see going from a kind of junked up cabinet to a finished one. I love looking at the restoration photo albums because not only do you get to see like the really nice looking cabin at the end those sorts of albums will show you lots of details on the inside and why they're picking what they're picking and how are things wired up so you can really get a sense 
of a cabinet inside and out if you look at a restoration gallery rather than just a picture of the final thing. Well, fortunately, you, this is because there are only two buttons and, and a single joystick, you can have a really great experience uh, on an emulator. You don't mm-hmm. necessarily have to have the cabinet to, to really enjoy Juno first. It's kind of perfect for a multi-cage. Like, I can see why this is in all the 16-1 things because it's a nice, you know, pretty straightforward. Modern machines have ample power to run these things, even though it's pretty pretty hardcore for 1983. Uh, but you're like you're saying, it's just, you know, it's a raster image rather than a vector thing. So a normal monitor will run it and it's two buttons and an eight-way joystick. Yep, just uh, mess with and your... Uh, <laughs> that's right. Just mess with your, your HLSL filters and uh you'll have i still don't monkey with that stuff i'm still Mm, i still got no graphical front end on name i'm still doing everything with text i haven't monkeyed with the filters those filters you can you set those all in 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 an ini file so well why don't you send me user well that wouldn't be any fun why don't you why don't you post it on our show notes fine i'll do that so people can download it that's it so in our show notes for this week you can grab mike's ini file and see the world as mike sees it see the world through mike colored glasses (laughs) it's a very sad world (laughs) um so that brings us to scores scores oh i really liked this game until now until now well uh, don't give up because i think you did better than me carrington i'd be very surprised so i um would frequently get past the second uh formation level but mm-hmm. not get to the third one. <laughs> so it shows you, I didn't really get super far into this game. Uh, best and and my I didn't monkey with my main settings, so I was on a, I was getting three men. I guess with the dip switches, you can get. I think you could start with up to five. But I I was playing the three man setting, and the best score I did for this week, and I played the heck out of it, and this is as good as I could do. Unfortunately, was one hundred and forty three thousand six hundred ninety. Oh, I hate you. Oh, did I actually beat you for like oh. the first time this year? Really? I thought for sure you'd wipe the floor with me on this one because honestly, I didn't get that far into this game. I got 133,620 points. I actually beat you at this. And, I suck at this kind of game. And it was close too. <sighs> That's excellent. That's very pleasant. I knew I liked uh, this game for a reason. <laughs> now, I suspect if we play more, like for instance, how, how well do you play at things like um, Stargate and Defender? Are you good at those games? I, I'm awful at Defender. Okay, so, uh, me too. Oh, I'm, I'm terrible. terrible at Defender. And so I figured that I'd be bad at this too. Defender's all about the buttons. I, I can't, I can't do this. It's those. all about the buttons. It's all about the buttons, baby. Yeah. Um, it disappoint, disappoints me that I came so close to beating you at a game that I love so much. <laughs> You've talked to yourself into loving it? I do. I love this game. It's great. So for the so over the last half an hour, you've moved from very disappointing to you love this game. I do. Yep. Top, definitely top five. Uh, okay. um, <laughs> so I can just extend this show a little bit. This will be your favorite game <laughs> of will, all time. We're working on. I loved it from the beginning. When I played this down at the Underground Retrocade, like, I think it was even Scott who recommended it to me. I was on the, the 61 board. I said, well, I'm trying to find games I haven't played before. He recommended it. I think it was him. I'm going to give him credit. And um, from first play, I was like, this game is awesome. I love this game. And in fact, I, I adore I this game. I can't wait to, to wrap this up so that, that I can go play it. Because <laughs> it's your new favorite game. Now you'd mentioned the dip switches and the, the different lives and things, and we should we should probably mention this because uh, our sponsor, who likes to who likes to put the game that we talk about on on our, I guess we have a, a no quarter cabinet or something. At, uh, As every at, arcade should have. That's right. And so I got a, an email from him asking me what settings I used on on this ROM, and, and you'll have to Carrington send yours to him as well. Mm-hmm. But apparently. 
there are so many different settings that you can change in this game that really, really affect how the game's going to play. And and so he wanted to make sure that the I players... I was on an easy setting. <laughs> well, maybe so. But he wanted to make sure that the players got the same experience that we did since he gives stuff away mm. related to these games. I never monkey with the settings. My settings are always whatever the default in MAME is. And, and mine mine were too. And But but it was interesting to to learn that. And as I'm looking at the at Champal scoreboard here, the scores are all over the place. So the, the top score for the, the points in marathon setting uh, is 78,888,980 points. That was set by That's- Tom... Crazy. Yep. Set by Tom Gibson. Now, on the default settings, Tom Duncan set the, the score at thirty. At, I'm sorry, at three hundred twenty-one thousand three hundred and sixty points. So there's obviously something really radical going on there as, as far as the change. And if you scroll down even further, um, it looks like because because Champau uses Twin Galaxies' old database, mm-hmm. uh, Twin Galaxies stopped taking scores from emulators for this game because because of how, how, how widely the settings can vary and change the gameplay. So the emulator high score is 231,050 points, and that's been grandfathered in. It says no more scores will be accepted that way. So it's just all over the place. Right. So our scores are pretty respectable then. I think so. Yep, especially well, for depends, I guess it depends on the setting. I think we're probably in that marathon setting where the guy got 80 <laughs> probably million. Probably so, I, I would assume, yes. <laughs> I was just in the default. It seemed like a marathon thing. It just seemed like you go forever. It never never paused. Right. And I do know that I started with three men, though. One one quarter, one virtual quarter gave yep. me three three lives. As did I. And I didn't I didn't monkey with the, the settings uh, other than... And, and I really generally don't do anything with the main settings unless I'm... I'll put it on cheat mode if it's a game that I'm horrible at, but I need I need to get further so that we can talk about it. I'm still not um, sure how to do cheat mode. <laughs> so like, if I could, oh, my sure, scores would be way sure, better. Oh, sure, pal. I, can't, I guess you got to download like a cheats Yeah, there's, thing there's or a cheat file that you have to download and then you know, have it to... It seems like that would just ruin the games. Once, once you... Once that's... Once you put that in the in the main fo- in the main directory, then you have to go in and enable cheats as well. So okay, uh, it definitely takes. Some I'm effort. too. I'm way too weak. Like I can't resist stuff like that. If I had cheat, I would just cheat on every game, and I would just ruin the experience. But I know me. I'm I'm way too weak. If I could just like hit a cheat button, I'd be like, yeah, God mode enabled on everything. Well, man, I'm even lazier than that. I just make scores up. <laughs> I don't even play these games. What was your score? It was L. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> No, I yeah. For the most part, I I don't I don't mess with those. So whatever the default MAME settings are for the ROM that I've got, which I think is zero point, uh, the, the last time um, Junifirst the Junifirst ROM was updated was for zero point one five zero. That's what I'm using. Yeah, mine's from I don't know what my version is, but from two thousand and seven is the file date gotcha. on it. So, been a while. Uh, so are you looking forward to next week's game, Carrington? I am crazily, super, unbelievably looking forward to next week's game. It's going to blow everybody away. Well, Little hit good. there. I am probably the most excited I've been of any show so far. I'm, on the other hand, not at all looking forward to this game. This is <laughs> this is definitely bottom five for me. Like, And I'm not just talking <laughs> of games that I play on a regular basis. This is like of all the games ever made, this is bottom five. Even Come ones I haven't played. <sighs> It is one of the most interesting no, games. No, You're crazy, no. I'm, man. I'm going to start out. We'll just start the review right now. It's terrible. Don't play this game. We haven't, we haven't even played the sample yet. <laughs> nope. Here it is. <laughs> terrible. Terrible game. <laughs> You're so wrong. You're nope. just punking me. 
I'm not actually. Oh, this really? is horrible. Oh, yeah. next week is going to be an interesting because I'm going to have a lot to say about well, this game. It, and in fact, if you like this game as much as as you claim to right now, I'm just going to fire you. So <laughs> I, I'm going to win you over the I way Juno first did. What are you talking about? I always love Juno first. Oh, come on, the controls alone won me over this game. Top man. three, top three game. We'll see. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> that brings us to the end of another No Quarter podcast. Thank goodness. About no time. kidding. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you for podcasting with me, Carrington. You're welcome. We'll see you in a week. <laughs> Bye. You've been listening to No Quarter, the classic arcade podcast. Feedback can be sent by email to noquarter at monsterfeet.com, or you can find us on Facebook as No Quarter Podcast, and on Twitter, we are at No Quarter Show. You can also find us on both the Throwback Network and the Real Retro Junkies Network. All of these links, plus the show notes, are available at monsterfeet.com. And like all Monster Feet podcasts, the original material in this episode has been released to the public domain. <laughs>